Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Richard Deacon. The San Diego Museum of Art is showing Richard Deacon What You See is What You Get, a survey of the artist's career. Curated by Ariel Plotek, it's on view through September 4th. It's accompanied by a catalog published by the museum. Throughout a nearly 50-year career as a sculptor, draftsman, and printmaker, Deacon has explored form, volume, and space with unusual rigor. Much of his work is motivated by the exploration of shapes within shapes, with the tension between the two shapes and the material in which the work is made providing the artwork's activating tension. His dozens of major exhibitions include a 24 retrospective at the Tate Britain, and last year the Museum Folkwang in Essen, Germany, presented a career-length survey of Deacon's drawings. On the second segment, Daniel Heidkamp discusses his paintings and the pictures of them on view in Taking Pictures, camera phone conversations between artists at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But first, Richard Deacon, after the break. The Getty presents Friday Flights, a series of interdisciplinary happenings that brings together a range of Los Angeles-based artists to transform the Getty experience. Join visual artist Molly Cerno and musician Brian Chase of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs on Friday, July 14th at 6 p.m. for their presentation of the choreographed soundscape We of Me, among other experimental installations throughout the evening. Learn more about this program and other upcoming events at getty.edu slash 360. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Andrea Chung, You Broke the Ocean in Half to Be Here at its downtown location from May 19th through August 20th. For her first solo museum exhibition, artist Andrea Chung presents a new immersive installation together with selected prints and collages that explore legacies of colonialism and migration in the Caribbean. For more information, visit mcasd.org. And we're back. Richard Deacon, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Happy to be here. I'd like to start with one of the earlier sculptures in the San Diego show. The first thing people will see as they walk in, and it's a 1984 work titled Like a Bird, which for me is one of the major sculptures of its time and one of my favorite things in your oeuvre, too. As its title suggests, it very much recalls a bird with its wings extended. I don't think of there as being a lot of fairly direct relationships between a familiar form and your work and sculpture, and even fewer in which your title, in this case, like a bird, points to the thing. So how did that bird-like form happen? Was it intentional, or did it just kind of end up being like a bird? (laughs) It's more likely it ended up being like a bird than I started from that. The... The work was made for a, originally. Originally, the work was made for a, shy, uh, for a site in Liverpool on the, a garden festival outdoors, and uh, the profile is the same. It's, re- it's a re- repeated profile, and it kind of sits back on uh, on its side. It would be hard to know in what way it was like a bird, apart from its kind of airiness, because it's much bigger than any bird could possibly be. But you're right that the profile, I mean, that there is a, a clear connection between the title and the, and the appearance of the work, which is uh, less true for other works of mine. So although I find the relationship of likeness one that I've been kind of in, interested in 
as a kind of formal representation. So that looks like this, or this looks like, or whatever. So that uh, that connection between things is uh, is one that I've been interested in. And also, like is a kind of in English, like is a kind of very funny word because you can use it to uh, indicate affection. You can use it to indicate uh, connection between two things. You can use it as kind of junk language, and as in like you know, you know, the, as a kind of just a way of hesitating. So, in itself, the the apparent connection between the image and the uh, uh, the, the conjured image and the object is not necessarily as once you kind of come down to examining it is not necessarily as as kind of specific as you think. Uh, it was paired at one time with an. It, I made two works at the same time. One was like a bird, which is the large, this large one, and the other one uh, is like a ship, which is actually very small. And uh, there was some refer- some slight reference in both of those to the original site, which overlooked the Mersey. There are boats going up and down the, the River Mersey, and uh, seagulls in the air. So, uh, and the seagulls are much bigger than the boats visually because they're closer to you, and the boats are far away. Although actually the, the the reverse is obviously true, so the that's kind of that's kind of where it, uh, where it's where it started from, I guess. And then the work is made by uh, this very simple repetition. And there is also if you're drawing, if actually if you're drawing a this kind of a cinematic thing when you're drawing, if you people draw birds in flight, then they often would, would re, kind of repeat the wing to. To show to show movement, so the repetition of the three profiles has something of that in it too. Although the it's not evenly divided, the angle between each of them isn't uh, it's not it's not symmetrical. So it kind of falls down on one side more more than on the other, uh, and one profile is more elevated than the other. That's great. In fact, it it anticipates the the next two things I wanted to ask about. One one was about like a ship. As you mentioned, the two sculptures were initially installed together. You described the relationship as being between the two sculptures in the site. Was there an intentional initial relationship between the two sculptures? Were the forms and the weight, or in the case of like a bird, lack of visual weight, playing off each other, or was the relationship mostly with the site? There's some similarities in the way that the two things are drawn, and it's a the bird like a bird is uh, does have a kind of bird like profile uh, like a ship doesn't look anything like a ship you know it's not a it's got a mast in the middle of it and it's a cut out uh, flat piece of galvanized of galvanized steel held in a, a riveted uh, folded riveted edge so it, it kind of rocks both bird and boat have a uh, a very specific relationship to the ground or to the seats of the water in the case of the boat. They're not actually kind of grounded in the same way as a kind of car is grounded or a person is grounded. They, they have these kind of round bottoms. And a bird, you know, obviously because it's a flying, a flying thing, but it's, when it kind of lands, it's, it's, uh, some birds are land based, obviously, and we're not going to get too, too specific about it, but they, uh, there's, uh, both flying and sailing. It seems to me have different relationships to the ground, to walking or driving. I think that was that was the difference. You also mentioned the way like a bird sits on on the ground, and one of the things about that work it's in the collection of the Nashville Sculpture Center in Dallas, so it's pretty accessible to Americans even when it's not in San Diego as it is now. 
is the place where the forms join together, not joined in the woodworking sense, but where they come together. They cross over, you mean? Yeah, where they cross over is not on the floor, as one might expect for reasons that aren't totally clear to me, but we're kind of used to that kind of thing. The place where the things, where the forms come together hovers in the air above the floor. How important was that to you when making the work? I think that's fairly vital. The point of contact with the ground was not where it's put together. So that the sculpture is obviously autonomous from the ground. If it was put to, if the point of contact with the ground was the point where the things come together, it would be fixed to the ground. Since the point of con- since the point of intersection is off the ground, then the, the, the sculpture is also off the ground. So much of your work has an internal shape, a shape within a shape, that is, and an external shape. And there's often something between them, and the tension between those things and the properties of the material you're using are what make the thing work. First, is that a fair kind of summary description? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's fine. That, that's fair. You know, I, I often talked about the sculpture in terms of skin and the inside and the, and, and it being between the inside and the outside. So uh, there are lots of different ways you can approach that, but it's, you know, the, and the, the skin does work, you know, it's, uh, it carries the structure. So we'll get into some specific examples of that in a moment. But I've read you tell the story of reading Rainer Maria Rilke while on a trip to the United States in 1978 and how coincident with those two experiences, what you were reading and being here, you were making drawings and how these three things all came together and pointed you toward what we think of as as your mature work. Is there a sculpture that might that you might use to walk us through how those things came together and how and how they were useful? Well, there's a drawing in the show that is one of those drawings. It's the office when they're singing and the drawings were made in the States in, uh, in, made in New York in 1979, 78-79. And uh, it's maybe easier to describe how the drawing, how that process of drawing went to describe the, the transition. So I had been making, uh, I'd made a lot of sculpture before, but I had been making kind of abstract sculpture from uh, specific kinds of materials. And the way that I was working was that I would gather material together and, and form it into a kind of preliminary shape, uh, which was like a prelude to starting work. And then the, what I thought of as the work itself was the, the process of cutting, bending, folding uh, of that shape till I reached something that felt like a conclusion. So there was a, uh, a sense in which the, uh, both the whole quantity of material uh, was present from the beginning. And although I might be using an additive process in the way that things are connected together, there was always, it was always one kind of quantity of material. The drawings kind of set out from a similar strategy, but I was, uh, I was drawing rather than making sculpture, in part because I was in America rather than at my studio in London. And the drawings were, uh, I started off the drawings with a geometrical figure on the on a piece of paper, and I always use and I used a fairly specific size piece of paper, and would draw a square or, or a, a triangle or a rectangle, and then use points on start connecting together points on that 
geometric figure using kind of curved lines and then progressively build up from from those kind of sequences of related curves and so the the, the form kind of a, a grew or accreted around that core and what the uh, and the drawing retained a retains a uh, a trace or a memory of all that in terms of the kind of the construction lines used to uh, used to make the curves until finally a uh, by a pro- uh, I had a shape that kind of uh, that interested me and uh, what interested me was uh, it turned out seemed to be shapes which had some resonance with uh, the things that I've been reading from Rilke and ideas about resonance anyway that the inside and outside and the way that resonance is a response to an outside is a kind of response to an outside stimulus and in uh, Rilke's the, the the Orpheus stories this Orpheus is such a good singer that he makes things that he makes the animals come to him but the rocks and the trees also move and so his song or has the has a kind of physical has a physical power to move things and in uh, when you did high school physics I don't know if you ever saw any resonance experiments with sawdust in a tube but the uh, very simple resonance experiment where you hit the resonant frequency of the tube uh, and then the sawdust kind of lines up into uh, into waves and then when you when you hit another hit an overtone then it lines up into a different set of wa- different set of waves and in between it's kind of it's quiet so there's this physical energy that's uh, that, that, that's attached to that's attached to, to resonance that uh, that I that I think's interesting and uh, without getting too complicated about it there's there's some su- suggestion that being human uh, and talking to each other the resonance has some relationship to the idea of humanity that you kind of recognize what you recognize in someone else is a kind of uh, or, or is a kind of resonance and the idea that the hollow shape could be a, a source of a, a source of resonance or a kind of resonant resonating box, a sound chamber, meant that it could uh, somehow respond to to ideas you might throw at it, to meanings. I think the you know I, I used in the past I often used to talk about the way in which the um, HMV record label was a kind of paradigmatic illustration of both resonance in that the dog is listening, but also uh, the dog could equally, be, equally well be barking down into the, it could be a conical speaker on the record pair, could equally well be a hearing aid. So it's a, uh, it was a, the, that, that cone both amplifies and receives and uh, the, uh, and it amplifies by, uh, by magnifying resonance. And it receives by by uh, focusing or concentrating stuff that uh, the stuff that comes at it, and that kind of bundle of ideas I think is also is is around in Rilke's sonnets to Orpheus. Uh, so I'm reading that, and I'm also doing these drawings, and I find myself drawing things which start to look like other other things. They look like shoes or saucepans or uh, uh, mouths. Obviously, Orpheus. The head and the mouth, and Orpheus, the head, ear, and mouth thing. And Orpheus is quite strong, you know. Orpheus gets his head torn off by the 
maniyats and thrown into the river, but it kind of carries on singing as it goes down the river. So that those were all, those were, that was the kind of cluster, the idea cluster, a very rich idea cluster that I was working with. And when I came back from the States, I began to make two kinds of works, one of which was laminated wood, like in the same way as like a bird, where which seemed to echo the kind of drawing process that that had gone on in the uh, in, in those Orpheus drawings by kind of going round and laminating being a repetition by going round and round the same uh, uh, the same shape, and the other was uh, a kind of rolling up uh, using sheet uh, using sheet metal, and the, the for a while the works kind of alternated between the uh, between the two things. Do you remember if what what the primary challenge was in migrating those ideas from paper into three dimensional form? It was easy. <laughs> um, what uh, uh, what I okay the way that I what I'd done in the in that kind of very concentrated period of drawing was to uh, build up a kind of vocabulary or internalize a vocabulary of uh, of shapes. There was a hesitant start, uh, obviously, but the uh, but then after a while, it was just became like this. Um, this this uh, I'm not very good at drawing what I'm going to make, but having done having kind of given myself a vocabulary, then it all became somewhat straightforward. You know, I'm very. If you ask me to draw plans, then I'm you know very. I'm really not very good at it. But actually, if you ask me to begin, then I just begin, and I don't find it problematic. In in a number of interviews over the years, you've talked about how for a lot of your work you've been motivated by trying to find a way of making a sculpture without that sculpture having an underpinning structure the point being to allow the external surface of the sculpture to be what supports the entire object you know the further point the further point being that you don't want an armature underneath something you make so that idea has become fundamental to sculpture in the last 30 or 40 or 50 years to the point where I imagine art students don't think much about it. <laughs> but I'm guessing that when you were an art student and, and beginning in the 70s and 80s to work through ideas, that it was still an idea that had to be worked through. Do you remember how or when you focused on how your sculptures would be supported? Well, that's that's quite a good question. I, the These things became articulated for me in in particularly in that period, immediately post the uh, pre and post the, the, the time in the States. Before I went to the States, I was doing a lot of performance work. And the performance work did uh, was partly arose partly out of other things I was doing in, uh, that I'd been doing in college and partly wanting to get away from a kind of workshop, uh, which was and I was to do with getting away from a, a workshop theory about making sculpture. So the and in some of those performances I used materials and some of those materials were fairly easily manipulated and uh, there is the during there during in the course of those I think when I began to focus uh, I had understood something about the relationship between structure and work that if you folded a piece of paper then that was uh, you were putting structure into it but it was also an act of work and the those that the more you thought about it the more interesting it was to try and uh, pursue that idea that the way in which a uh, what seemed to be like a sheet or a surface could become uh, could become structural and if you sort of think about making things by rolling something up it sort of means you don't have to have you don't have to have a center and if you don't have a center you don't have to have an explanation you don't have to have, it's not rational 
uh, an armature is a model of rationality. It kind of starts from the bottom, front starts from the inside and builds that to the outside. Whereas if you started with a, by if you start by folding and kind of then you then it's di- it's different. It's not the form isn't explained by its internality at all. It's self-supporting. But I you know I, I read Buckminster Fuller when I was uh, you know when I was 18 or so. So that the idea of tensegrity was uh, you know and all of those Buckminster Fuller ideas about uh, about structure were were things that I'd. Uh, somehow absorbed. Perhaps it's obvious from my first couple questions that I reread the book of your writings, which is titled So and If But. In the last couple weeks, it was published in 2014. It is one of the absolute best books of artist writings I've read. And unlike some books of artist writings, which can be a little dry and lean on theory to support the work, it's just a really fun, enjoyable read. One of the things I noticed in it is that you barely mention a 20th century sculpture until page 119, (laughs) (laughs) until an essay dated 1992. And I'm going to ask about that sculptor and the sculpture you reference in a moment, but surely there were 20th century sculptures about whom you were thinking and a lot before 1992. Yes? For sure. Yeah, sure. I've just done a talk about Donald Judd in uh, in China. Donald Judd had a huge impact on my work. And your uh, some of your questions and some of my responses obviously bear a bit on uh, my reading of Judd. So when I say uh, I, was try- I was assembling together a material and then trying to keep the whole material there at one time, there's obviously a kind of reference to a certain kind of uh, uh, affection for Gestalt sculpture in the in the early 70s, and some kind of clinging to that, some notion of kind of clinging to that idea of wholeness. And the idea of wholeness in Judd is really a very, you know, really very interesting idea. It depends on when you go back. The, when I was a student, there was a, uh, I was particularly attracted to American sculpture, although subsequently I went back and sort of found a new generation British sculpture, particularly early Philip King, and to, to a slightly lesser extent, Caro, although I like very much the early, the small pieces, and uh, Bill Tucker, you know, who w- was he, both Tucker and uh, Caro actually teaching at St. Martin's when I was a when I was a student there. Tucker's work, I thought, was uh, was a very str- uh, was a very powerful influence in the mid seventies. Uh, he seemed to be the kind of he seemed to be a bridgehead for me between uh, wanting to be in the studio and wanting to make particular kind of wanted to make particular kinds of, of uh, abstract sculpture and Nauman equally would be one Eva Hess you know there was, there was a whole kind of uh, uh, there were a whole gamut of uh, people that I was uh, uh, that I was interested in I'm quite surprised I mean it's, your remark is quite uh, intriguing because I would have thought I would have mentioned Judd before page 191 but uh, obviously not Maybe a teeny bit in passing, but there's more Judd after that. In fact, there's quite a bit of, 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 of Judd after that. The the artist you mentioned on page 119, which suddenly I'm, <laughs> I'm turning into a big deal uh, without meaning to, is Henri Laurent and his sculpture, The Clown, which is in Sweden now. It's dated either 1914 or 1915. We'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com. And I wonder if your 
1981 sculpture, If the Shoe Fits, is an unusually, at least in your oeuvre, direct address of the clown. Accidental connection, I would have thought, rather than intentional. I got interested in Henri Laurent slightly later, in the, in the mid-80s, and uh, I can see the connection you're making, uh, and I... Uh, uh, and I find it, uh, and I find it interesting. But the, I'd have looked more in those early periods at Tatlin and uh, Russian sculpture than I would have done. And then, then at Picasso, and then through Picasso, then I then I looked around at, and uh, Laurence then kind of struck me as being really quite quite intriguing because of that mix of materiality and image. Not more interesting than Picasso, but you know, in a yeah, but as interest as interesting as Picasso. And actually, I can tell you why uh, it was Laurent. But it is because I was doing the uh, I did a show in Villeneuve d'Ascq, and uh, uh, and they they had a they have got a good Laurent's kind of collection, so I was looking at it quite a lot. You've made a number of sculptures that reference the lacoon form in in the long famous. Hellenistic marble at the Vatican, and in, including a 1996 sculpture, a 2007 sculpture titled Dead Leg, which is in the San Diego show, which is kind of this twisting, meandering form. Is it the Hellenistic sculpture that intrigued you visually, or the lacoon story, the narrative of it, that, that was kind of a jumping off point for you? Who was Pusa? Ah, the, the man painting. killed with a snake, the land, landscape with a man killed by a snake, so the, which connects the lacoon image, the snake on the dead man, and that, the combination of straight and curved. And then the, and then the lacoon, when I went to see it uh, in the Vatican, there was, uh, when it was initially reconstructed, there was a mistake in the way the left arm was, uh, was, was constructed. A lot of the kind of theory about the Baroque was kind of based was based on a misunderstanding of what the sculpture looked like and I thought that was I thought that was interesting too that the I mean the Baroque the Baroque I found interesting in that kind of uh, I like Baroque sculpture more I was surprised at how much I like Baroque sculpture that it was uh, that kind of uh, uh, evasiveness of surface and uh, slightly slippery relationship to meaning would surprises it surprises me that I like it uh, and that I'm in, in, intrigued by, it. although given my kind of ambi- my relationship to ambiguity and meaning, it's not you know it's not it's not that surprising. And the fact that I use a lot of curves in the work, you know, it's not also not surprising. That I'd be interested in the in in the Baroque. And then there's the the, the Lacoon itself, which has a which is also a kind of misunderstanding. His fate is a kind of misunderstanding. So. Uh, He's the one that throws the spear into the into the wooden horse of Troy, and uh, says that don't touch, don't trust Greeks bearing gifts. And uh, the Trojan, and when he's uh, when he's attacked by the the sea serpents, the Trojans interpret this as being a kind of evidence of his uh, bad faith. But in fact, he's the reason for his being attacked by the sea serpents doesn't really have anything to do with the, his empiricism or is it his his um, antagonism to the to the wooden horse there's a lot to like in the lacoon you know kind of one who likes to believe in facts rather than uh, uh, no kind of empiricist sacrifice on the altar of belief uh, but formally what uh, what interests me is that is how 
is a is a relationship between the uh, the curved and the straight, and the uh, and what are the uh, at a very kind of deep level, what are the signifiers of that uh, of that relationship? Uh, the Tate has a work of mine called uh, After. 1998. Uh, which is ba- yeah, which is after, which is based on the Poussin painting, or can, related to the Poussin painting, and has a has a kind of metal fence across the middle of it, uh, and a sinuous form around the outside, and that was uh, that was the work that I made uh, subsequent to making the Lacoon. So it was a kind of continuing exploration of that sort of uh, active line and. Uh, straight form, although there is also a kind of discussion about reflectivity in it, and the, the, the metal fence is kind of reflective and kind of breaks up light and, and is therefore kind of a, a, a ripply kind of surface, like a, a water-like surface. And then you've also the idea of the of testing in Lacoon, in the, the way that he used, he kind of uh, I've made a work called Facts on Opinions. So that there, there is that kind of, there is also uh, at the root of all my work is a kind of belief that there is matter, and that uh, there is and that's the the whole thing kind of grows from the fact that there is a physical there, are, there, there is physical matter, and that the and it and it's that's the thing you come back to when you're seeing it that the, that you this that this work is made of something that exists materially. Facts, not opinions, is a 1991 sculpture, and. The Poussin we've been talking about is is at the National Gallery in London, so you've had uh, regular and sustained access, visual access to it. Yes, I started looking at that in 1974. So you've been working through it for decades, literally decades. Yeah, I made a performance about it once called Ambiguous Gestures. Do you remember what you did in the performance? Yeah, I mean, I stood on a desk and kind of uh, tried to mime the, the sequence of actions through the through the painting. My guest is Richard Deacon. We'll be right back after a break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the West Coast premiere of Marissa Mertz, The Sky is a Great Space, following its celebrated run at the Met in New York. Bringing together five decades of work, the exhibition explores the prodigious talent and influence of the Italian painter, sculptor, and installation artist, Marisa Mertz. Co-organized by the Hammer and the Met, this first U.S. retrospective exhibition of Mertz's work is on view June 4th through August 20th at the Hammer Museum. Also on view this season, Living Apart Together, featuring recent acquisitions from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, including Dato Moriyama. Details online at hammer.ucla.edu. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents the world premiere of Gray Matters, May 20th through July 30th. A multifaceted survey organized by the Wex's senior curator of exhibitions, Michael Goodson, the show features 37 contemporary women artists working in shades of gray and marks the midpoint of a year in which the center's entire exhibition program consists solely of women. Through over 50 works, artists including Via Selmans, Ronnie Horn, Nancy Rubens, Arlene Sheckett, Lorna Simpson, and Kara Walker reveal the vibrancy as well as the expressive power in the spectrum between and including black and white. For more information, go to wexarts.org.
And now back to my conversation with Richard Deacon. You've been, as you referenced in your answer a moment ago, using ribbon forms for a long time. The, the, the works, the, the Lacoon sculpture we talked about is 96, after the work at the Tate is 98. And then there are works like Another Ribbon Bow, which is a ceramic work from 2004. Are all of your ribbons more or less descended from the Poussin, or is there a point at which the ribbon-like form itself became a formal investigation without necessarily having reference back to the painting or the Hellenistic sculpture? Uh, I've also been interested in meanders in rivers. And uh, and at one point, I started kind of investigating the relation. There is a kind of, in river meanders, there's a kind of constant relationship between source and uh, estuary, where the the, the meanders of the rivers have a uh, three times a uh, three times the straight distance, and as the floodplain kind of flattens out, the river kind of meanders more and more. But there there is a sort of process by which the the meanders gets kind of self-corrected and you form oxbow lakes. So that uh, the the uh, that relationship of, of uh, uh, remains fairly distance of straight distance to travel distance uh, remains fairly constant so that's uh, and that struck me as being kind of uh, a bizarre a bizarre thing that there was a kind of self-correcting mechanism in river meanders and the your, your question was yes it, yes i've been there's a lot of other works which employ which which particularly recently in the last 20 years or so which have explored seriality and uh, and repetition of a mod, of a of a curve module to kind of develop uh, develop meanders so ribbon bow is actually made from modular the ceramic is made from modular units thrown units which are then cut up and reassembled to form a to, to, to form this kind of ribbon-like shape, the task being to kind of get back to the beginning again uh, once you started. So these ribbon shapes, by the time we get into the early 2000s, are in, in lots of work, such as the UW84DC works from, from the early 2000s, and, and of course the ceramics that we've been talking about. When you have a form or a shape like that, like a ribbon, was your idea, oh, I'll migrate this to other media and see what I can do with it? I'm, I'm kind of, I'm curious about to what extent the material with which you were playing was important or just a, another way and another material in which to explore an original idea? Both. I think the uh, migrating an idea from one material to the other is a process I've employed intentionally. Uh, from time to time, uh, I can think specifically. There's uh, when I was making ceramic well, there's in the ceramic works I was making the early part of the uh, two, around 2003, 2004. Some of the models that I was making used. I began to use carving to make the you know make an angular form and then kind of cut it away and just leave the edges. In uh, 2000 and 2008, I think it was, and maybe 2007, I went to India. Uh, and I saw some rock carved temples, uh, and I thought that was a fantastic way to make architecture. That if you start with a lump and then just carve out the, the building, I thought that was just the most amazing way to make architecture. And uh, uh, and then I thought, as an analogy, I thought, well, that is all, that also kind of carving is a way to make constructed sculpture. So that instead of having to, uh, so you had it, you could you could carve a model, and then you didn't have to worry about structure when you were when you were building it, and then. 
So I made some things in clay, which I hollowed out, and then transferred that into steel, things made of steel tubes, uh, where the connections together is sort of little, just little circles. Little, they're like made out like sausages. I showed a work like that in New York in uh, uh, 2000 and 2004, 2005, called uh, a screen version. You'd have to check up what the, what year that was. In uh, for the public art uh, public art fund, and then uh, then I began to you to make more geometrical works using kind of uh, folded steel to make uh, to make these uh, uh, constructed polygonal uh, shapes uh, polyhedral yes and uh, what I haven't done is uh, so those are mostly instances of it's gone from kind of clay to metal. Uh, what I haven't done is then go to think, well, you know, I've done that in... Uh, but there is possibly... Uh, well, there is possibly a connection then to the way in which the housing shapes, the paper sculptures that are in, in the San Diego show, are a slightly later development of the same... Uh, of a kind of... Uh, of an idea of kind of connecting things together of connecting forms together. I mean, there's a, there's a few intermediate stages, but it, it's not untrue to think that the, uh, what started as clay became steel and then uh, became paper. So I think I see the ribbon-like forms emerge in another place, and I'm curious if there's a relationship. So the infinity sculptures, which are, I think, galvanized metal. No, no they're stainless steel. Stainless steel, and they're up against a wall and they're very flat is that playing with the ribbon-like form only pushing it up against you know not the picture plane because it's not a picture but flattening it out and finding another way to use that form and seeing if it works without depth and volume that wasn't really how it started uh it started by trying to make a piece of work like a jigsaw that you could put together on the floor by having modules that are a recombinable piece of sculpture so i made uh I mean, it, you know, maybe it does have connections to the to a certain form preference, but I made uh, some fairly simple two, three, and four noduled forms, and to, to try and make up a uh, this kind of reconfigurable sculpture, and it was a rather disastrous failure. But it did uh, uh, it did leave me with a number of uh, these units, which I then started to put, the, which then I re and they, you know, they were both technically inept. They 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 didn't really fit together. Uh, and they weren't particularly straight. And uh, then I realized I could combine them into, it could combine those uh, two, three, and four units into starting as two, three, and four. Then I would add a two and a three to make a five, and then three, three twos to make a six. And, and so uh, I, I started then to make, it was a bit like counting. I started to be able to start counting with uh, flat figures of steel. And then, uh, which is where the infinity title came from. And then, uh, after I'd used up that initial supply of components, I looked at it again and uh, found other ways to, by putting the holes in, found I could make it make them flat, sort of pushed on to make more and more complex units of number. So, I mean, I think it's more about number than it is about ribbon-like uh, ribbon-like lines. But then the the surfaces with that polished surface and that illusion of depth, because the surface is slightly puckered, uh, kind of puffed up. And the high points are polished, so as you move around it, you get the you get a 
uh, kind of shifting pattern on the surface. The the fix it has a fixed boundary, uh, obviously, but it, the surface kind of moves within uh, as you as you as you move around it. So there's a there's also that relationship between uh, stasis and movement uh, built into it that, that interested me. The, there are other works which I think more so it's more more about and as it's gone on as the series went on the modules became more complex uh, but I've actually not thought of it in terms of uh, rhythms you also stayed flat if you will in the alphabet works of the more recent years which are also flat installed on the floor up against a wall flat why after I, I don't mean this as a as a negative, of course, but why after decades of exploration of volume did making works that were really, really, really flat become interesting? And did it become a goal? Well, I had made works before that were flat. I'd made uh, things called the back of my hand, uh, which are uh, which, which are specifically reliefs. Why did it become interesting to make reliefs? Actually, it's kind of, there's always a kind of fairly straightforward answer. I described the uh, uh, hollowing out pieces of clay to make these kind of skeletal uh, skeletal blocks and the original drawings for alphabet were were kind of like wondering well what happens if i squash it you know what happens if i kind of take this uh, three-dimensional form and just squash it flat what does that look like if you kind of run a steamroller over the uh, over a, a three-dimensional uh, uh, armature you know kind of uh, a, a skeletal geometrical figure what kind of what do you get out of it and so those and the initial Initial drawings in the alphabet series were, were exactly that kind of getting taking these two things and kind of wandering, pushing them flat. And then, uh, uh, then it turned out that I and I carried on with that. Uh, it turned out I had 26 drawings, so they became alphabet. And then I thought, well, these are these drawings could could be in turn converted into uh, metal reliefs, or, uh, and it would be interesting to, to try and pursue as many different ways of folding metal as possible in order to construct these. Uh, and then at some point during that folding process, I began to think about adding color inside the channel of the folding. Uh, of the folding. And then uh, they could get pulled out again. It could, you know, it could equally well happen that you just kind of, uh, uh, having flattened it, you then pull it out again. The next work, I want, and I guess the last specific work I'd like to ask about doesn't really fit within <laughs> a narrative. It, it's just a work I like a lot. And that's Dummy from 1992, which is a wooden form on the on the floor. Is the more important thing here the form we see and the volume the wooden object takes up? Or is the suggestion of the obviously hidden internal space, the tension between the outside form and whatever is or is not inside the tension that motivated the work? I think dummy is the ins is the outside of an inside. It's like a hat mold, and uh, what's what's missing is the outer surface. The, the, it, so it's a dummy. You know, it's not a. The reason I started making these was uh, uh, I was making some work in plastic, in molded plastic, and founded that I found that I needed a form underneath to mold the plastic over. And I thought it was I thought what the plastic did to the mold underneath was kind of intriguing, in the same way as. You know, shrink-wrapped uh, shrink-wrapped meat at the butchers in the in the supermarket is interesting. That kind of transparent, what that transparency does to the surface. But then I found the the blanks themselves to be 
a kind of funny thing to be pursuing, but kind of but intriguing to be pursuing. So that they're, yeah, like I say, I mean, I think they're the inside, they're the outside of an inside. So that shape is is the eye and the mind can imagine how it can be readily scaled up, scaled down. And if you scale it down, it becomes even more tactile than the sculpture is in a gallery. A lot of your work, there's 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 an element of tactility, but I think for dummy especially, are you interested in tactility and the temptation of touch? Hey, I think it's a good idea, good to call it the temptation. Because <laughs> <laughs> actually, I really don't like people touching the stuff because it leaves dirty marks all over the I surface. <laughs> But that tension can be useful. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Even... But I think it's—I think it's not bad. I think it's—you uh, know—I think it's not bad to talk about it like that. But uh, haptic, the haptic um, appreciation of a work is—I uh, think—is better happening in the head than happening in the hands. I've obviously made work for—I well, not obviously, but I have made work for that is intended to be looked at, intended to be examined by uh, when I've been invited to do it for people with visual dis- disabilities. But the and it is quite sexy, kind of handling a smooth surface. And it also can, you can cut your fingers on the protruding screws as well. So there's a, uh, uh, and the work you mentioned early on, uh, if the shoe fits, precisely plays with that sort of invitation to touch and the prohibition on that by having its kind of screw surface projecting in the outs- uh, on the outer surface of the, of the rough that goes around the, uh, the top, so that if you if you do run your fingers over it, then you do you end up with kind of uh, small cuts on your finger. So it's uh, uh, the works can bite back. And finally, I read in the writings compilation that a number of years ago you found it useful to start your public talks with a joke. And so I wanted to close with that. What is the joke, and what about it was useful, and maybe still is useful? Well, I had two jokes, but the one I think I referred to in thing was the joke about what do you get when you cross a parrot with a, uh, a centipede? And the answer is a walkie-talkie. Uh, and the, what I liked about that was the uh, abomination of crossing two uh, completely unrelated creatures and the fact that you, from nature, you breed uh, technology and that walkie and talkie were, were kind of characteristics of... Uh, uh, I mean, I said to be obviously walks. It's got a hundred legs, and a parrot obviously talks. So we parrot things to each other. So the uh, and then, then to make a walkie-talkie, a uh, which is a device, which is a radio device, a uh, the kind of uh, uh, bastard progeny of this kind of uh, uh, union. I think was was the, the, and the way that language does it perfectly logically seemed to be an ideal that everything's held in place by the joke, and that seemed to be the way that art worked. That um, you had this kind of uh, uh, all these meanings kind of uh, thrusting around, uh, and they're held together by uh, by the kind of discourse of the uh, of the art. Richard Deacon, thanks so much for speaking with me. Okay, I've enjoyed it a lot. Okay, thanks a lot. SF MoMA presents Edvard Munch between the clock and the bed on View Now. Munch was one of the most celebrated and controversial artists of his generation, painting technically daring artworks that explore profoundly human themes about art, love, and the ravages of time. This not-to-be-missed exhibition reveals Munch as a tireless innovator throughout a career that spanned six decades, and offers a rare opportunity to see this modern master's paintings in person, including seven works never before shown in the United States. 
Edvard Munch, Between the Clock and the Bed, is on view now through October 9th. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Paint the Revolution, Mexican Modernism, 1910-1950, the most comprehensive exhibition of modern Mexican art displayed in the United States in more than seven decades. Featuring some 175 works and including masterpieces by Frida Kahlo, Jose Clemente Orozco, Diego Rivera, and Rufino Tamayo. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org revolution for more. Welcome back. My next guest is Daniel Heidkamp. His paintings, or rather pictures of them, are on view in Taking Pictures, camera phone conversations between artists at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Heidkamp is paired with painter Cynthia Dagno. The exhibition was curated by Mia Feynman and is on view through December 17th. Heidkamp is showing some of the paintings that are in the pictures at the Met at New York's Half Gallery through July 21st. He's had solo shows in New York, Boston, and in Sweden. Daniel Heidkamp, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you. Instead of my setting up how the, the show at the Met happened and how the collaboration was selected and, and who selected it, I thought maybe I'd let you tell that story. I was chosen by my partner for this, this project is Cynthia Dagno, and she, was, she brought me into the, the Talking Pictures show Basically, I think the Met ended up selecting the first dozen people, and then they all selected an artist. So Cynthia chose me. We're both painters, you know, and uh, sort of with the observational approach to painting. You know, I think in her mind that thought that would be a good pairing. And, you know, the, the premise of the, the museum show is that it was these pairs of artists exchanging images over the course of what ended up being five months, exchanging the images on our cell phones basically, in real time throughout the five months. So we're normally preparing for a show, an artist is working away in their studio, building up imagery, and at the end, you know, presenting it to the world. Here, we were making them throughout the five months, but seeing each other's work as we were going and sort of responding to each other's work uh, to generate this group of paintings. And also uploading them to the Met. The Met had this, you know, an iCloud folder, essentially, that we were uploading it. So in, in theory, they were also seeing the work. So what ends up being in the final show is photographs of these oil paintings that were made over the course of the five months. And a selection of the oil paintings is on view at Half Gallery. Could you pick uh, maybe a, an example, maybe two paintings, maybe four paintings, maybe five paintings, whatever, and explain how the back and forth between you and Cynthia worked? I mean, well, I can just say oh, the overview of like how knowing we, we were going to try to make what ended up being 60 paintings. We didn't have the number to start out with. We knew we were going to make a bunch of stuff. So, so for us, for this show, we did these sort of like uh, trap paint, uh, like artist journeys. And from mine's like the Boston to Brooklyn, that was the name of my half gallery show. But in hers was Baltimore to, to New York and both sort of like taking our hometowns and then coming up we both live in new york now so it's sort of this like the artist journey like covering the ground you know that between our hometown and new york so that was the the sort of guiding thesis to to how i was getting this imagery she she used that as well i think hers were you know she had some of the trump stuff in there so she sort of like meandered a little bit 
on uh, on her own. But I would say the call and response thing was was like it wasn't usually wasn't like one painting and then the next painting was the response. It could be you know, in a week or two later or a month later, or um, one example, I mean, she has that like snowy kind of like graveyard picture with the, the orange light casting through the tree branches. And I thought that was a great painting. So, and I was like, oh, I definitely want to make sure like I get a snowy picture in there. And then I have this sort of Williamsburg bridge snow painting that pops up a few things later. I know like the statue, I painted the Copley statue and then she painted up, I think that's a statue of a possibly like a Confederate soldier in Baltimore or something like that. The Copley statue in Copley Square in Boston, of course. Yes, yes. So that was my, I mean, th- those were the types of color spots. I mean, there are other examples. There is, in, in, in American art history, particularly in American painting history, there is a long-standing relationship between painting and travel and tourism. American landscape grew up as a painting thing, as tourism away from American East Coast cities, uh, went into the wilderness to experience what for a young nation was a new kind of tourism. You're a painter who 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 likes his history. Was any of that on on your mind? You're mostly going into urban and suburban settings for your paintings, but was that context, that history on your mind? Sure, sure. I think the probably the most obvious connection with this project is like the Hudson River stuff where I went to Olana and painted the Frederick Church house and visited, you know, Thomas Cole's that area that didn't make it into one of these paintings, but to any of the, like, those upstate landscapes, the deer jumping across the meadow, that's upstate. That's like the Hudson River School style. Or it's not really in the style of the Hudson River School, but I, for me, it's like going to those places. You can sort of, you, you get that, that sort of, I always think of it as like the art, that art energy or the vibes that are already there. You know, great art has been made there. You sort of, in, it's been made there because the scenery is really epic, and all you kind of have to do is sort of look around, and you know, if you get out, get out a canvas and sort of start painting, start taking some pictures, and sort of right away you're tapped into some of the, some of that energy that that you know is there because you know it's there because you've seen the earlier paintings that were made there. So, so there's some of that, and as far as yeah, like the tourism thing, definitely, definitely, but. I'm not sure. Is it the painting that it has to be painted? I think that the connection is that like the making a painting of something, I think like triggers more about memory for even for, for both me and for the audience. So it's like, if I paint like mass mocha, that's one of my paintings, the mass mocha lightning strike, which I can talk about separately, but just something like that, where this was my, actually my first trip to mass mocha, despite having, you know, been grown up in Massachusetts, but the idea that like you can look at a photo of mass mocha, but if you see a painting of it, for some reason, I think it's almost like more like hitting the memory spot. So for the audience, it's like they get more of a sense of like that they were there or something, whether that works or not. It sort of works for me. So I think that that's an aspect of it. Let me let me stop you there for a second, because I, I did want to I was going to bring up that painting anyway. It's a painting with a lightning strike and the Berkshires behind the lightning strike the lightning strike is just off of the center of the can- of, of, of the painting on the right, and the clock tower at Mass Mocha is just off the center of the painting on the left. So the middle of the painting is kind of between the two, and there's this real tension. Trees are green. There's lots of green in the painting. Trees are also purple in the painting. T- uh, tell me how you got to that color. It's, 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 it's a really unfor- it really speaks to what you were saying about how when you see the painting, you remember... A place better and I think that purple for me is well 
there's a pair of paintings because the the one next to it is that all pink interior, and that's the Alex de Corta uh, installation that he had of at Mass Vocal when I visited. I, um, he's a, Alex de Corta is an artist. He's my you know guy from New York, or he's you know my peer, my contemporary, not necessarily. Well, whatever. He's he's a a fellow artist here, and I like the idea of the using oil painting to represent what's considered the most contemporary art, which is these like LED light installations. So then you sort of like dial it back into the oil painting world and sort of almost like amplify it and almost change it a little bit here. Like in his installation, there was a bat circling on a string, but in a painting, you can just have the bat circling. So I, I imagine this installation, but instead of like the animatronic bat, you just have a real bat in the room. You sort of walk in and there's a bat flying around. But that was my extension my imaginary extension of his installation, which you can only do with the painting. And then with the lightning strike, I sort of kept maybe some of the pink colors and even in the window from the exterior of Massbook, you see the, you know, five pink windows. Again, it's an imaginary interpretation as if the light installation you can see from the street, which you really couldn't. But I thought that would have been a, maybe a, an interesting, you know, possibility if you could see museum from the street but then the lightning strikes and so nature wins in the end you know so like the the biggest light installation is is mother nature you know striking the hillside behind i think the pink color was just sort of like if in that in that narrative that i created like as if the lightning itself had the pink light it's sort of well some one of the things i do with the with the observational painting is like take what otherwise would be incredibly hard to both see and photograph and like use painting to to capture that, you know, it's sort of like this, the, like a slow, dumb way to see something. But then if you sit there and figure it out, you know, you can get a, get a good, a good feeling or a, an interesting moment. So your paintings in general are full of a, a ton of art history, references to art history, sometimes actual, even other things from art history, if you will. And yet your paintings always feel very much like now, like they're never stuck in the 19th century or anything of the sort. So when you paint white cliffs in a rocky beach, there's an understandable, legible reference to Monet or Matisse, but you put a figure there, which neither of them ever would have done, nor, nor did, for that matter. When you paint an, an Oceania recalling Matisse cutout-like form, which, which you do in quite a number of paintings, it's actually a clump of grass on a sand dune. The reference is the thing. The thing is not the thing. When you paint a shark in the water, there are bubbles behind it that keep it from seeming as dead as the hearst. When you, you know, I, I could keep going with 20 of these, but I'll just do one more. When you paint a luncheon on the grass, it's not courting young men and women a la the French tradition. It's mothers and their kids with the Met peeking out from, from between trees in, in the background. So this is a long way of asking, do you look for or think about how to add these signifiers of time and place, or are, you know, are they strategic in that way that you think about how to update a 19th century trope for New York 2017, or do they just pop in because of how your mental path or process works? It's probably a com combination, but I, I think about it. I mean, you want it to seem like now, but... I feel like the now the thing that makes it feel like now has to end up being more stylistic because you how many paintings have you seen of someone like looking at a cell phone or another classic one of someone sitting in bed with their laptop like that 
that's supposed to that's you know modern technology represented in painting i don't know but it i don't think that's exactly what what's giving it the feeling of hopefully that it's not stuck in the 19th century it definitely is sort of like jumping off from from some of that stuff some of the decisions are conscious some of it some of it is is like a almost the reverse of that where i like the idea of looking at something and it's like the same you know like if if i'm sitting here in 2017 but i paint this thing and then it's like almost indistinguishable, indistinguishable, not necessarily stylistically, but the thing that I'm looking at in my process is almost indistinguishable than that what, you know, Pissarro would have been doing kind of thing. So I like both sides of it. I like that sometimes it's completely new and other times it's, it's very much the same. And the thing that I guess really hasn't changed or, or the way I use the paint these materials are the same. So then it's as the olden days up until now. So the material, the paint tubes and all that is, is basically the same. Often and the, the same companies. Same companies. All that stuff. I'm into that. I end up, you know, buying all those, the, the European paints, the, the paints from Paris. And they're basic paints. Windsor Newton, you know, uh, Saint-Elier, like all those, those old Holland. Those are the ones that I end up buying because they're already sort of like, you, they have all the right recipes, you know. They, if you use them right, you're immediately in the language of the paintings that I like to look at at the museum, you know. So you don't really have to fight too much if you if you kind of use them in in the way that they're that they're you don't fight the paint. You use them in the way that they're supposed to be used, and you can kind of get in that language, and it's it's exciting, you know. So it's it's a, definitely the, the it's a back and forth. Ah, so you start with your present experience and then think backward rather than thinking 1867 and pushing it forward. But it's back and forth because the 1867 thing sounds ridiculous, but it's that's the uh, the paint, that's the the, pro, the the what you're doing. I think you know there's there's that that the French landscape painter deep inside of me that just wants to you know just to do that the, the guy who's like looking at everything and looking at the light and and then in different from with with painting itself what's different is that you can actually just go and get the same exact stuff that they they used so you're kind of like right there Mo, i can't think of a many other parallels in you know in our world that where you can do that so and and because of that i'm i'm sort of dedicated to these to the the, the paint itself, uh, the the old tubes, the old the the old companies. I I've you tried, you know, like American paint brands, and I won't name names, but even like a, a company, a, a very well known American paint company, just sent me a bunch of tubes as a you know try out our stuff and let us know what you think, kind of thing. And it, it was good paint, and it was lots of pigment, but it was really weird because I haven't used anything other than the the French paints or the Euro, European paints for now probably five or six years and I it almost wasn't really like oil painting to me it was very odd and uh it was a good experience to have but it, and I, you know I made a nice little painting with it but it was like a really different different thing I think I don't know it's, it's the secrets it's too many secrets it's basically like I the reason that all these colors look the way they do is based on, you know, the, the, the French landscape painting that we all know and love, the Impressionists and, and some before, and that they were really trying to 
say what color is the French sky and what color are the the leaves in the Barbizon forest and and there's colors for all that whether it's your sap green or your cerulean and and there's more and more examples of these types of colors so that's one way of looking at painting where they're basically all the recipes are sort of already kind of mixed for you to do what you want to do and whether that's a flesh tone or you know the a gold pigment things like that where they're sort of like lead you just read the name of the paint and it's sort of telling you what this color wants what, what do you what you're supposed to paint with this color that's one one whole way of like reading the like palette of like a um the sort of like chromatic palette of a paint companies the what they have on offer you can go through and see that and then there are other there are other ways to sort of look at the same group of of colors if you look at a brand's entire stock there there's there's like other almost like shortcuts built in where you're no longer necessarily being offered the colors that are are tr- totally true to life but they're the colors that are true to like the life of a painting because in when you're you know say you're mixing like a green grass or the the you know the the green grass on top of a sand dune like you want to be like that's the brightest green i've ever seen you're sitting there and looking at it with your eyes and you like want that all that big color but then if you start matching that color you realize it's much more red than you thought or something like that but then with painting then you still if you start mixing down your greens for instance or your blues then it starts getting muddy and stuff so you sort of then have to take what your eye is seeing and like translate it through the the medium this in this case the oil paint and and then know that like even though the when I mix my color, I'm, I'm painting from life, and I mix that color green, and it's way, way more red than than you thought. But then you almost have to then convert it back into like painting language and use the the green that that won't turn to mud. So it's almost these like two ideas going at once: one that the colors are made to to capture you know life, and then the other that paint it's the paint itself has these imperatives that make it so you have to kind of like tweak reality, tweak what your eyes actually seeing. I want to avoid totally boxing you into the 19th century. So I want to reference an, an interview you did with Bill Powers for Muse, in which you said that Alex Katz was the first painter of whom you took notice, uh, that he gave you uh, what you called a point of entry. I squinted at that pretty good when I read it, because I think a strength of your painting is that it's never as banal or sugary or simple as Katz's can be. So what were you seeing in Katz that was helpful, you know, that I'm missing? <laughs> I think what Katz shows is just the way to, one way to be a representational painting that painter that can sort of go head to head with, you know, the, the abstract painters that, that are, that are like that when you're a young painter coming up, you want to be Franz Klein, you want to be de Kooning, you want to be the guy throwing the paint around in the studio, that kind of that romantic aspect painting. But then for me being someone who likes pictures and likes to render and figure stuff out, Katz was a good example of someone who was sort of doing both. And then with, he's in New York and he, I always like what I like about Katz is cosmopolitan. I like the fashion. I like the style. I like the simplicity, but it's still realism those kinds of things. I feel like cats. I like them. So, so did you make a cat, so to speak for the Met show? 
Did I, no, 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 no. What do you mean make a cat? Like, there's, did I... there's one painting in the Met show that comes close to the face focusing frontalism. God, that's a bad phrase I'll never use again. <laughs> frontalism. Um, <laughs> okay. Of an Alex Katz. And I wonder if that is a conscious and specific engagement. Not necessarily, but so there's two portraits, and I assume there's one of like a younger woman and one of a an older woman. Maybe the oh, we're one coming the, to the we're coming to the one of the older woman in a moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, no, it was funny because that particular portrait was actually an earlier portrait that I made. I kind of like restrained. We did all the the Met paintings at eighteen by eighteen, so a few of them. There's probably a handful of them that were earlier ones where I ended up restretching them down into that size. And then kind of breathing new life into them, something that's been sitting on my shelf for a few years, then looking at it again, and just with a few extra brush strokes, resolving a few areas and like getting it to, up to uh, how I wanted it to look for today. At that time, when I made that, you know, when that, my friend Meredith, who's in that painting, sat in front of me and I painted it, it was probably, I was doing a lot more portraiture then. It wasn't necessarily showing it, but it was sort of part of my like, just practicing and, and improving my painting where I was having a lot of people come over and, and, and work on portraiture. So at that, I don't, I don't think it's so much that it's, it's influenced by cats in just a general way of just everything I just said, but basically I don't, I wasn't, it wasn't like an homage to it or anything. I think it's, it's the way, the way that sometimes like the cats looks and in that portrait, there's some of that. It's just, if you go through the process of, you're doing an observational portrait. You're going to mix the color for the flesh tone, and then you're and then mixing the hair color, mixing the eye color, and then you're sort of putting it together in the light of the room. And then it, even without thinking about cats, it ends up looking like that. I mean, that's kind of that I means. And then through my hand, it ends up looking like that. That's just how things look in that when you go through that process. Another painter I wanted to ask you about was David Hockney. Is is he useful to you? Sure, sure, of course, definitely. I mean, there's a move of Hockney's that I think I see in your paintings, which, not all your paintings, of course, but Hockney often makes a painting from three steps further back in a room or in a landscape than you would think makes sense. He opens it up, makes it broader, or maybe paints it from a foot or two higher in a room than you think, than seems logical. And then having walked out on the ledge, pulls it all together. And I think that's a move you sometimes use. I think, yeah, I know what you mean about the, like, the perspective, if it's an interior, for instance, in a room, like, where are, like, the eyes of the viewer? And, and that's, that is something that almost happens. I don't really control that. So it's not a cho thing I'm thinking about that much, but I, I have noticed that. So it's, like, this sort of choice of the vantage point, not even of the viewer, but of this sort of, implied vantage point of the painting so that i think with the hockney thing and it's probably very similar to what you're saying is, is like it's a lot about the ground and where he can especially in the more some of the newer landscapes where he's like really putting stuff on the ground and gives in sort of gives you that nice uh, flat area to to build the rest of the landscape out of and i look at that but then with this is you know you learn from everybody or you or, or i gain from from everything but i always think back to of course the ground. I mean, you can go, that's Renaissance painting, Bellini. You look, it's not just Hockney. Hockney's showing us today, but it's always been there, you know? So 
he's just sort of using it to, or he's he's also doing it, but then filtering it, it's more contemporary, it's more abstract in a sense. And so I'm sort of, I guess, on that continuum somewhere. I love Hockney, of course, of course, but it's hard for me to look at a lot of it because for almost the exact reason we're talking about, just for the, the anxiety of influence, like if I look too much, how much of it can filter in because we're kind of in the same territory, you know? Oh, your paint handling is totally different. Your scale is... Hockney is one case, but then even with the Bates, David Bates thing, it's it, what it is is that it's, it's we're all we're arriving in similar places and probably even on similar processes, but this sort of, it's not so much, be, it's not like derivative or influence, it's more about just like where you would end up if you go on this road. You kind of know what I mean? So... In that sense, like I, I could end up having stuff look like, for instance, David Bates, but without having really looked at his work that much. Like the letters up the side thing, I've that didn't even. I've never seen that in, at all. I mean, the reason there's letters up the side of that painting is because when I did the the portrait of that woman in her apartment, she had a painting on the wall and had sort of abstract, jazzy gestures going up the side. It's got a little bit of a Stuart Davis. I mean, we'll have yeah, exactly. That and that's what she had up in her apartment, yeah. and so then I sort of translated it through my thing. And then I even her name is Jean, and so I think it says even though I flipped the L, I mean I flipped the J, and now it looks more like an L, so it kind of says like lean. But it was my thing to say Jean, and then just very subtle, you see. So, but yeah, I think that it's that mix between you know influence and just digging deeper, deeper into the, the process and you'll end up along your way in, encountering all sorts of different artists, whether you mean to or not. And I've learned to just roll with that as opposed to fight it. I fight it if I'm, and this doesn't usually happen, but if I'm sitting in my studio and I immediately start thinking of someone else, and usually it's not David Hockney, you know, like a, I don't want even to say, but you know what I mean? Like if, if this other person, I make a gesture and all I can think about is, oh, this looks exactly like this other thing. Then I might take a step back and, and sort of say, why does that feel that way? And, but I don't face that too much. That, was, that happened more often when I was starting out. You know, when I was preparing to talk to you, one of the things I went through a lot of paintings and, you know, because I look at a lot of other paintings that aren't yours too, and, and think and thought to myself, hmm, who do I see in this? Who do I see in that? And there, there are lots of places where I can't find anything, you know. I mean, like your shadows are very much your shadows. I don't, I don't, you know, none of that kind of Wayne Tebow blue and your, you know, or, 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 or Hopper-esque. But the funny thing is that I, I think I, I, you know, I'll take that as a compliment, but I also think there's a funny thing with painting or with art is like almost when you, the viewer, when you start seeing too much of something else, you, it's sort of a turn off. Oh, it's somewhat derivative. But if you start seeing nothing of someone else, it's almost a turnoff too, where you're like, where am I? You know, it's sort of this void. And it's almost like it has to be, you have to just hit that right, the correct note. You just have to, it's, it's, it's a subtle thing. I'm not saying it's intentional or you don't control it, but if you see a, a, a work and it looks like nothing, then it almost it's a red flag in itself, you know? Daniel Heidkamp, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.